I'm Dr. Jacqueline Duget. Welcome to What is Black podcast that focuses on issues important to raising healthy and thriving Black children and adolescents. As a pediatrician and mom of color, I saw the need to create an additional educational platform to reach parents raising kids of color to address issues and challenges that are not always discussed in the pediatrician's office. Thank you for joining us for this week's conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What is Black? I'm so excited to have another great guest. I have with us today, Lori Tharps, and I'm just going to give you a rundown of her of her greatness. Um, so Lori Tharps is a content creator whose work lands at the intersection of race and popular culture. Her website is My American Melting Pot, and she also hosts a podcast by the same name, My American Melting Pot Podcast, where she has conversations and tells stories about the intersection of race and real life. She's also an associate professor of journalism at Temple University, and an, an award-winning author and a mother of three. And on today's episode, we're going to talk to, um, to Lori about black hair and her book, Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. So welcome, Lori, to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I wanted to just set the background a little bit for today's discussion and share with the listeners and also also with you, the reason why this episode was important for me to do, or the issue of black hair has been an issue for me, I think my whole lifetime being, being a black woman and also identifying as a biracial black woman. And I think even more so my experiences with my two sons. Recently, I should say probably over the last year, my son has decided to, um, to grow his hair in locks. And I was totally, I knew about locks, but... My hair texture, and I think being a being a first gener- generation immigrant, there's hair's always had this kind of um, politicalness to it, this social correctness. So locks, I think, growing up wouldn't have been quote unquote the hairstyle, right? If you want to go to college, get a job, and so mm-hmm. I had to. So him wanting to develop locks really challenged my assumptions and biases from when I grew up, even being a black woman. But eventually, you know, I I, I had to overcome those things. And and I help him with his locks now, but I had no idea how to maintain locks, how to even start the process. So so that was one issue why I think I wanted to, to address this, because as parents, I think there again, these assumptions and challenges I think that black parents have with their kids is that our hair comes in multiple textures. First, I want to just commend you on, you know, being open to your son's um, hair choices, because it is hard as parents to like all people to challenge our own assumptions, right? And to make, you know, to question our beliefs. Like, why do I have this kind of knee-jerk reaction that if my son wants dreadlocks, um, maybe he won't get a job or maybe he won't do as well in, you know, professional situations, things like that. And that's actually kind of, you know, the simple answer to your question is why is black hair so complicated? Um, It really goes back to that the, the assumptions that we all have about black hair, um, which are rooted in, no pun intended, rooted in the black experience in this country. And that's actually, you know, trying to figure out why black hair is so complicated in terms of how people perceive it and what is the power behind it. That's the question that my co-author Ayana Bird and I wanted to answer and why we wrote Hair Story originally, because we could look around and see that black hair caused a commotion, it seemed, in all different ways throughout society. And it didn't seem to make sense that something as seemingly inconsequential as hair, right? I mean, this 
thing that grows out of your head, another, you know, it's not like you did it on purpose. Your head just grows out of your head. Like, how could this this inconsequential part of our body be so significant in in politics, in business, in popular culture? And really, again, when we dove into it, when we started doing the research for Hair Story, you know, what we came up with was, again, that our hair is really representative of our experience in the United States. And it is an experience of people being brought to a place where, you know, against their will and then forced to um, assimilate or die, basically. I mean, that's really the African-American experience is being brought against your will and then being forced to assimilate. And the hair is the perfect metaphor for that experience. Our hair is very different from European hair. And this country was built on a European model from our constitution to our popular culture. And so you have people who are not European in appearance. They're not European in thought. They're not European in any way, shape, or form, but they are forced to assimilate to a European um, way of life and aesthetic or die. And so when you look at our hair, our hair kind of shows that struggle. Our hair doesn't look like white hair. And then when it is tried to assimilate, when we try to make it assimilate, into a European aesthetic, it really doesn't do what it's supposed to, right? It's like, it's that one part of our being that says, no, like, you know, you can do everything. I can speak the language. I can walk the walk, talk the talk, everything. But my hair is going to be a constant reminder of my blackness, of my difference, of what separates me from you, right? And that is essentially why it's so complicated because it is a visual reminder of our history and our identity and ourself. And so if you're trying to assimilate because that is the price of admission for the American dream and your hair just will not be, will not disappear, if you will, you know, the Africanness of our hair will not disappear, then, you know, it's a constant conflict point. It's a constant struggle. It's a constant reminder of what is, uh, you know, American history and what has been done to black people, what black people mean. Their, again, their sacrifice that has had to happen for them to be in this country. So that's like a really, I think, kind of a profound way of looking at our hair. But the reality of what that means is that when you are interacting in a mostly white environment, like, and I say mostly white, and I don't mean that in necessarily by numbers, but the, the society we live in is, is shaped by a white aesthetic and a white belief system. And your hair doesn't, again, it's, it's just an, a visual reminder that you're different, that you're not white, then it becomes yeah, it becomes a point of conflict. And that is exactly why in the 1960s, when the civil rights movement was at its peak, people who, you know, black protesters used their hair to make a visual statement that says, we've had enough of trying to assimilate because it doesn't work, right? We're not given any sort of benefit you know, we're still treated like second-class citizens, even though we're doing everything we're supposed to, 
So why don't we stop torturing ourselves, trying to bend ourselves into this image of you, and let's start with our hair, right? Like, we're going to stop straightening it and chemically processing it and trying to put it into styles that it was never meant to be in and let it be free. And that is a symbol for us that we are, you know, it's not like we're embracing a big Afro because that harkens back to our ancestors. No, it was a symbol that says, we're going to stop trying to be something we're not. And we're going to embrace our true selves. And we want full recognition of our humanity in our true form. Right? So, so that's essentially why black hair is so contentious because it just will not be, uh, ignored or um, it cannot be uh, erased, I I guess is the word, is um, it can't be erased. Yeah, it's a visual representation of what makes Black people unique. And I I love that, how you describe um, Black hair as a metaphor, because as as you were talking, you know, I'm processing the, the issue of assimilation. And I think for, as parents, I think that was one of my fears, right? I I had to really check myself. I'm like, well, do I really want my child to quote unquote assimilate right into a predominantly, predominantly white world? Right. Because I think it's true for many, for many middle-class families, maybe even not so middle-class. Right. But I think that there's been more of a move um, for us to live in suburban areas and many suburban areas. You know, I live in Maryland, the suburban area I live in is, is predominantly, is a predominantly white neighborhood and a school system. Right. So, those were challenges my kids had even very young mm-hmm. is white, you know, questions about why does my hair look different? I want to talk a little bit more about some strategies for how parents can help their kids, right? Sort of navigate this world of black hair and how do we define blackness based on hair? But I, I think what you said was great. This, we don't want to, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an act of, it's an act of power. It's an act of who we are. Um, and so I just, just wanted to talk a little bit more about this issue of how we affirm our kids and have them appreciate and and ha- develop this self-love for themselves, you know, with the hair and not the hair, because, you know, we're going to have those conversations. And I was wondering, as a mom, from your perspective, have you had to have you had to deal with the, those issues and helping your kids navigate the issue of hair and self-love and, and confidence and how how you went about navigating that? Yeah, of course. And it was really ironic because when I was hair story and hair story and my first child were born in the same year. So, you know, I was actually on tour with the book and I was very pregnant and everybody wanted to know, well, you know, what are you going to tell your child about their hair and how are you going to do their hair and like what, you know, and I knew that I was like really happy because I said, oh, I'm having a boy. So the hair is not going to be an issue. Ha ha ha. Little did I know. I have two boys actually. And both of my boys, well, yeah, my, my, my husband is um, Spanish. And so um, my children are biracial. And so as you know, you know, when you have biracial children, you never know what their hair is going to look like because it's, it's a crapshoot. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Like it's literally, it, you don't know what you're going to get. And sure enough, one of my, my elder son has much darker skin and very kinky hair. And my middle son, my second son, excuse me, has, um, very pale skin and much looser curled hair. And then I have a daughter who has skin tone is somewhere in between the two boys and she has very curly hair, but it, it falls 
you know, it's loose, you know, it's loosely curled hair. So I have three children with three different skin tones and three very, very different types of hair. And so not only was my challenge to infuse a sense of pride with my children, but I had to have three different lesson plans because each one was completely different. Um, But what was interesting to me, you know, my first, like, I had a small period of mourning because I was, like, prepared to have my children, you know, be black children with black features where I would give them the lessons that, you know, I wish, that I, I, wish I had had as a child that I didn't really get. And then I get three children who, you know, one is, is perceived as a black child, one who is perceived as a mixed child, and one who is perceived as, I don't even know what you are, but maybe something, like, Italian or something. Like, I mean, I literally have three children who look like they could be from three different families. So, but what was interesting, you know, I kind of mourned the fact that I didn't have a, you know, that kind of narrative that I was prepared to, to, um, to, to teach, particularly because I had spent so much time researching black hair. I then assumed that because my children had quote unquote, like mixed race hair or two out of the three did, I thought that I would, not have kind of that same, let's say, white people's hair envy that a lot of black children grow up, you know, wishing they had hair that moved or that good hair, bad hair, like verbiage that I grew up with. Um, But I still had my two boys at different points in their lives say something to the effect of they wanted hair that moved um, and or they wanted a hairstyle at the time when like Justin Bieber was popular or something, you know, it's like all the boys wanted a hairstyle where they could like flick their bangs out of their face or something like that. And my children went to very diverse schools. You know, they were not surrounded by white people. They lived in very mixed neighborhoods. Their friends were kind of a hodgepodge of black and white and mixed themselves. And yet, with everything that I thought I had done to, you know, make them uh, proud of their hair, you know, their nice curly hair, whatever, there was still this idea that having hair that moved, you know, even as boys was, you know, in their psyche. Now, it wasn't a perm. I mean, it wasn't something that they struggled with for a long period of time, but it still really surprised me. Um, it, it caught me unaware in this which I feel silly because, again, I spent my entire, you know, adult life writing about these topics, but I just wasn't thinking that my children who have, have, you know, beautiful curly hair would still desire hair that moves, right? I mean, that's, I feel like that's the best euphemism for white people's hair is hair that moves, right? Yeah, 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 totally, totally agree. Yeah, so, you know, my response has always been, you know, one is not to dwell on it, not to shame them for being like, what? Why would you want that? Like, why would you say that? But rather to kind of not give it a whole lot of credence, you know, um, you know, not to spend like too much time on saying, oh, that's what you want or we got to figure this out, um, especially because they were pretty young. I mean, they were like 10 and maybe seven or eight or something around that time period. Um, and then I just do a lot of looking at, other like because they were this was coming from I feel like it was Justin Bieber I mean it could have been some other I mean it could have been some other popular pop star at the time or something um so like you know my thing is to like show them like my elder son looks a lot like Jaden Smith 
so at the time it was like, look what Jaden Smith is doing. Like I would show them just other people who looked more like them. My middle son loves soccer. So, you know, I would show him like all these soccer players with really cool curly hairstyles. And like, so then it became like pretty quickly there or they were able to see somebody whose hair looked more like theirs. We're kind of in that celebrity camp. So then it was like, okay, uh, I want my hair like this mohawk, like this soccer player has cool. And it could actually look like them. And, you know, then it was, you know, my son who looks more like Jaden Smith was like, Jaden Smith was like playing with color. So it was like, Oh, I could, I could have pink hair or whatever it was. So that was my, like, I tried to see that it, for my, in my particular case, it wasn't necessarily like, I mean, I, I'm sure there was the sense of like hair that moves is cool, but it was also like underlined that is I look up to celebrities, which is what we do as a culture, right? You see what you see in the media, you look at celebrities, they're always kind of glorified. We see them, we emulate them in all different aspects of life. So here's a celebrity that looks like you. So if you're going to emulate somebody, because like you're never going to get hair that moves, sorry, (laughs) like it's just not going to happen. But look at this cool guy's hair that looks a lot like you. Why don't you see if you could do hairstyle like that? you know, if you're looking for a style to emulate and that worked really well and it continues to work well, you know, now that they have their own phones and stuff like that, where they can, you know, actively search for quote unquote visual role models. I'm really happy to see that that continues to be, you know, they looking for, you know, they both went to the barbershop yesterday and it was like, again, the people who they're looking at for inspiration, they're not looking at white people. They're looking at brown and black people and, you know, are super happy and their confidence is right where it should be. Um, And my daughter, who's only eight, you know, this is just beginning to be a thing with her. But I feel really good because she has never said she wanted, I mean, her hair moves. Her hair is just kind of crazy because it's, it's, it's curly, but it's, it's, it's a whole lot of different textures, but for the most part, it's braided all the time. I just keep it in braids because it's, her hair is really wild. And if it's not braided, it collects stuff in it. You know I mean? She's, she's a young, young girl. So she's runs and plays and plays outside. So if, if I didn't keep her hair braided, it would, you know, she'd come home with leaves in it and everything else. So she looks to a range of people in terms of what she aspires to for her hair. And it's usually more about length. You know, now she wants to cut her hair off. She's never had a haircut. So her hair is pretty long and she wants short hair. You know, it's not about, does it move? Like somebody, my mom offered to straighten her hair. She wanted to see what it looked like straightened. And my daughter was like, yeah, I don't want straight hair. I like curly hair. So I feel like thanks to the fact that um, she's my third child and I feel like we have a lot of curly hair role models that she has picked up that curly hair is the best. And we, we, the other thing that I think is really important, even though I have boys, which again, I didn't think this was going to be a thing, but it is, is that we spend a lot of time, like my boys, because they really appreciate their curls now, you know, they get products for their hair. You know, the middle child is just now actually caring. So it wasn't like this was always for him, but the older one has always been kind of a, you know, I don't know, a diva. So, you know, doing curly hair stuff, even watching videos has been part of our conversation. So my daughter now at age eight, you know, she's like, let's, you know, use products and do this and do that. And to her being a part of a family with curly hair is really, you know, it's really normal and really great. And there's no sense of shame or 
wanting something that other people have that she doesn't. And, and again, I think that's because we have developed an appreciation for, I mean, it's silly to try to turn off celebrity culture because you can't get your kids to not see what's out in the world. Like that's not going to work. You have to embrace the fact that kids are looking, not just kids, everybody, all of us do this, that they are looking to celebrities. They are looking at media. They're looking at representation, you know, in these public places to sense what's cool, what's not cool. And so, um, rather than saying like, don't look at the media, look at your mother, I'm your role model. No, be honest and try to find role models and images that you can share with your children that reflect their own type of beauty and hair types, textures and styles. Well, I think that's, um, I think that's a great advice. Um, cause I think, you know, as you were talking about, um, your one son that loves soccer. So I think, I think that's really helped with my youngest son. So I have two sons as well. I wasn't, you know, I don't have girls. So in some ways I'm like, I was challenged because I'm like, um, I thought I was going to get off easy. I don't have girls. I don't have to worry about, about hair <laughs> issues, but as you just, as nope. you, yes, as you clearly share, clearly share, it is true. It is real, right? Our kids. Yes. Yeah, a whole I mean, guys have a whole litany of hairstyles as well. Their hair mm-hmm. comes in multiple different textures. So, and yep. and soccer really, I think, was sort of was sort of a great savior in a way, right? Because my my youngest son could see other kid, other young, you know, young men of color and the different hairstyles, and found something that you know, like he fits that fits his fits his liking. So he he loves his locks. And my husband mm-hmm. and I, you know, it's interesting once he, I think, I think my kids are pretty handsome, right? And I think you'd probably mm-hmm. say the same thing about your kids. And, you know, with the locks, I'm like, oh man, I'm like, I'm ready. You know, I'm ready to be a momager, right? So I'm ready like, you know, if you want to go on a photo shoot or something, be a model. But it look, it really looks good. He wears it well. He's confident about it, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which I think is great. But I think it, it, had I not, you know, had he not had that soccer or that, you know, again, looking at the videos and things like that to have someone to sort of emulate and say like, oh, yeah, I can look like that. Or I see someone I, I see someone reflected. Mm-hmm. I see a mirror mm-hmm. of myself. It was it was very helpful. Yeah. And, and again, a lot of us with sons, we did think like, oh, we don't need to worry about this. And then there's that moment of panic because you're like, oh, dear, I'm not prepared. But what's really amazing is that there is, you know, like my elder son, he's 18 now, but he's showing me videos about, you know, men. Like I've been fully aware, of course, of all of the YouTube videos, the black hair YouTube videos. But I didn't realize there's a whole like male version of that, mm-hmm. that that men are. There's, you know, teen boys um, showing, you know, how to do brain styles and other things. And. Um, and that's what's really great about this life we're living now, this time period, because you do have a lot of people who can create media. You don't have to rely on, you know, the three networks, like hoping that somebody on NBC is going to be wearing a hairstyle that your child likes. There's a lot of ways to curate an experience for your children with media, not with your own personal family members, but with media where you can be like, oh, you know, you can just kind of do an Instagram search. You can do a YouTube search. You can just do an images search, right? Um, for, you know, black hairstyles for young boys or black hairstyles. for You know, there's just so many ways you can, again, curate an image experience for your children of color that will give them something to aspire to that does not have them emulating whiteness, which is what I think many of us in 
previous generations did not have. So I think the I think the other thing that I really enjoyed about the book was I I look at it as learning about um, both the power I think quote unquote power and the beauty of black hair and how the mm. book you know really explored to me you know like all these all these layers of hair right um, and you and you touched on them earlier. But, you know, I feel like spirituality, cultural beauty, economics and pragmatism of black hairstyles mm-hmm. over time. And I was wondering, why was it important for you to and your and your co-author to delve into these aspects and significance of hair and not just I mean, because you could have just written a book that says this is black hair. But you went into so many, so many different layers. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, and I guess the first like honest answer is just because it's so fascinating. I mean, I, the book started for me as my master's thesis in graduate school and I didn't know what I was getting into. And I really just scratched the surface with my thesis, kind of looking at the business and politics of black hair. And when I turned it in, my thesis advisor suggested I turn this into a book. And at the time I was, you know, relatively young and the thought of writing a book was very daunting. But when you have a, you know, uh, an author and your journalism professor suggest that, you take it seriously. So it took me a couple of years after graduating um, and then meeting my co-author that we decided to dig in. But we really, our, our agenda was to do a kind of a cultural history of black hair with as much rigor um, and um, as, as any other kind of cultural history book. We didn't want this to be a how-to or a personal essay book, which is what people often assumed when we said we were writing a book about black hair. And coincidentally, there was a book that came out with a very similar name at the same time that was a collection of essays. And that's not to say that's bad. I mean, it's also really helpful. But we wanted there to be on record, you know, a book that people could turn to to find out what did black hair mean to black people before the influence of white people? We want it for people to have a resource to look at as to this, the industry, the black hair care industry, how it has been influential and instrumental in um, creating some of the most important industries and institutions in black America. For example, that, you know, some of our, the first, um, Historically Black College was founded by Black barbers, right? That, you know, some of the first multimillionaires, Black multimillionaires, um, earned their fortune by producing and selling Black hair care products. I mean, everybody knows, well, most people have heard of Madam C.J. Walker, but she certainly was not the only Black woman entrepreneur making millions by selling hair products, um, Annie Turnbull Malone was another woman millionaire who actually Madam C.J. Walker started working for and then went off on her own. Sarah Spencer Washington. And then that, that, those trailblazers, you know, paved the way for many, many more black hair care products, developments and companies. And this, this idea of not just building wealth for themselves and their families, but taking that wealth and building schools and community centers and theaters and scholarships. And that has carried on into, you know, modern times, but it also explains, you know, there's always this kind of 
mourning within the black community when a black hair care company is sold to a white company or a multinational company because of this history. And people need to understand that instead of demonizing black people as, you know, hysterical and histrionic because of a hair care product company, right? You have to understand the history. And so we wanted to really explain that our hair really has had so much influence in not just black people's kind of day-to-day life, but in American life, that we can recognize certain parts of culture and history and language by, you know, how it has been um, influenced by black people and their hair. So we wanted to write this book for black people to understand the greatness and power of something that seems insignificant. And we wanted to write this book for non-black people to understand why black people spend more money um, on hair products than other um, ethnic groups. We wanted people to understand why, you know, sticking your fingers in some black person's hair without asking is not just you know, kind of broaching personal space, but understanding how significant the hair is, what the hair means, what it has meant historically. Um, And also just the basic idea of, you know, how much time it takes to style my hair. So if you stick your fingers in it and ruin it, like it's not insignificant. So it's really important for non-Black people to really understand the depths of meaning to our hair and how it's, it's ancestral, it's historical, it's not because black people are overly sensitive, right? So my goal in general as a writer, as a content producer, is to kind of explain the cultural differences so that people can get along better, so that we can get past what we think of as America's de facto segregated society. We, we don't have to be a segregated society, but if we don't understand differences, right, and if we use differences as a reason for um, remaining apart, yeah, we're screwed. On the other hand, if we understood this is why black hair is significant to black people, this is where um, these issues and ideas come from, Um, As well as, like I said, black people understanding for themselves, because it's not like anybody ever taught us these things. Like every black person in America needs to read hair story. But at the same time, every non-black person in the world in the United States needs to read and understand hair story as well, simply because then we would sort of level the playing field and no longer see these instances like that young man in New Jersey who got his dreadlocks hacked off at a a Um, wrestling meat or we won't see a black woman get fired from her position for wearing uh, her hair in a natural state or seeing a young man not hired because he has his hair in dreadlocks because there's so much misinformation this hairstyle you know um if you're wearing dreadlocks, you must be a drug dealer. If you're wearing your hair in a natural state, then that must mean you are not a team player because you're countercultural, right? All of this misinformation about what certain black hair styles mean leads to non-hiring, non-firing, or firing, discrimination, children being kicked out of classrooms, not being allowed to enter a classroom because of this misinformation that certain styles mean certain things. And, you know, being 100% honest, which you even admitted yourselves, it's like black people need this information too. A lot of black people believe, you know, the same false narrative about what certain styles mean. And, And again, reading the book, you understand why. Because there was a time 
not so long ago that if you were a black woman and you were not having straight hair, you're not going to get a job, a husband, maybe even a place to live because it was the judgment was real about this tone, the skin tone, as well as your hair texture. And you can't really change your skin tone, but you certainly could change your hair texture. And if you wanted to be successful, by all means, straighten your hair. So it's not false for parents to worry about their children. It's not false for schools to suggest their business students, you know, cut off those dreadlocks. But because we know where it's coming from. It's usually coming from a place of concern, but, you know, concern can be wrong. It can be misguided because we have followed the false narrative that has been put in place that these hairstyles, these natural hair is inferior, that these styles mean you're a criminal, um, all of these different things. In fact, I've just I mean, I've just heard from so many different places, um, you know, the United States military banning certain styles because they associated them with certain lifestyles. When in fact, you know, you know, the military in 20, I think it was 2014 that they updated their grooming policies and, you know, outlawed certain styles for black women. And it was like they were suggesting black women, enlisted women, wear their hair in weaves or relaxed. And it was like, we're fighting a war in the desert and I'm supposed to find somebody to relax my hair or give me a weave? <laughs> like, does that... Yes. And on the other hand, we can't wear our hair in twists and dreadlocks, which are the most low-maintenance styles and a lot more effective when we are, you know, supposed to be focusing on protecting and serving, right? So the military obviously had a red hair story <laughs> or, you know, consulted with the people they needed to consult with, but because when they made that policy and it went public, so many people complained that the military did the right thing. And they said, let us go back to the drawing board. And they did. And they revised their policy, which is my point is that with just a bit of education, right, that you can go from being discriminatory and oppressive with policy to something that, you know, no, like nobody gets hurt. Everybody gets to bring their best self to the table and everything is much more efficient because we're not waiting for the black soldiers to get their hair pressed, right? Or find somebody to put in their weave, right? I mean, think about how inefficient that would be if, if that was the policy. All the black women soldiers, uh, you need to get a weave or relax your hair. So, you know, I mean, again, just think of the inefficiency in a, in a situation where speed is important, right? So, so that's the, you know, the very long answer to like why it was so important because we truly believe that knowledge is power, right? And we all need to have this knowledge, black, white, Asian, Latino, whatever it is, we all need to be on the same page so we can stop with the discrimination, misinformation, microaggressions, and everything else that is preventing us from being a more stable and supportive society. Oh, I, amen. And, I, and I'm also thinking from the perspective of internalized racism, right, that has been perpetuated because of the socialization and media messages over time and not really knowing that history, right? And I think, and again, I, I definitely would, would promote, recommend other parents um, reading Hair Story. I think it is another way to sort of understand, like you said, the, the historical context. Like I'm really envisioning our hair is sort of a crown, right? There is a rich history and a rich 
richness about that, right? A worldness, I think, to our hair. And I think as parents, if we can, I don't know if you necessarily want to say like you're royal because of your hair, but I think it, it, you know, it's more affirming. It's more confidence building for kids. And I, and I, and I love that. And I think having, having this background, having the history and knowing the history, importance and significance of black hair and how, like you even said, barbershops, right? Barbershops were, um, and, and that was one thing that I learned from the book as well. The fact that a lot of these um, entrepreneurs who, whether that be barbers, beauty beauty salon owners, or developers of products, they really gave back. They used they used hair, the funding that they got from doing hair, to invest it back into the community. So all all these different all these different layers that the book uncovers, I just love yeah. it. I just love it. Yeah, and that's the when you have that information, you know, you can as a parent particularly, but you know anybody who works with young people and young, you know, define young however you want to, because, you know, I work with college students now and I think of them as young people who need some learning and, you know, not just book learning. Right. But when you have that information, you know, it's like, it's so much easier to give your, your children, your students, what kind of, uh, you know, your hair is not just your hair, you know, historically black people have thought of their hair as a source of identity. Right. And your, your hair was the way that people recognized who you were and what state of being you were in. If you were celebrating, you had a different hairstyle. If you were in mourning, you had a different hairstyle and people could look at your hair and know again, where you were. They knew what family you belonged to. They knew if you were powerful because the more powerful you were, the more elaborate your hairstyle was. And that was for men and women. And today, you know, we look at black women and so, you know, we look at the, the creativity they have with hairstyles and, you know, it's like, we have always been creative with our hair. We are paying homage to where we come from when we play with our hair. It's not, we shouldn't be demonized because we have this creative um, expression that is part of us. And black hair, you know, rather than lamenting that, oh, it takes so long to get our hair done, it takes so long to do a style, you know, celebrate that fact that we have this incredible artistic, like, material that grows out of our head that we can do these amazing things with. And it's like, you don't think that way if you just believe the narrative that, you know, you're somehow, like, second best. And you have to do all these things to get your hair to try to look like a European hairstyle, as opposed to, you know, I come from people who have done all kinds of things with their hair because they looked at it as, you know, the closest thing to the gods. They looked at it as a way to express themselves and their identity. And as a person who grew up, I grew up in, uh, um, in Wisconsin, surrounded by whiteness in all aspects of the word, including snow, (laughs) but like, white people, you know, like white traditions, white culture, everything. And I kept my hair straight and I just tried to keep it as out of sight as possible. Meaning I didn't do exciting styles. Like I wore ponytails, right? Like two when I was little, one as I got older, I didn't want to call attention to myself via my hair because, you know, the hair is that thing that really separates us. It wasn't until I wrote Hair Story and had started doing all this research and was surrounded by more black people because I had moved to Brooklyn that I started to look at my hair as a 
a place of experimentation and creativity and, and self-expression. And I'm a very creative person. I'm not saying I'm talented in my creativity. Like I can't draw or paint or anything, but I think of myself as like a person like, you know, like give me a canvas and I'll be like, Oh, I'm going to just paint something. And it looks like, like a three-year-old did it, but I love to express myself creatively. Right. Um, I wish I could sing too. I can't, but I love singing. I will take a microphone and sing, 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 but like that is who I am. And even recently, because I've had dreadlocks for a very long time, because I'm also a very lazy hairstylist, but I recently took my locks out and I have like hair to play with. And I, I think every day, rather than like, well, what kind of appropriate hairstyle should I do with my hair? I think, what kind of, what can I do with my hair? And sometimes I let my daughter play with my hair and she's eight and she'll put my hair in like six different puffs on top of my head in a braid. And I think that's incredible. I like that and I'll put some flour in there you know like a little silk flour and be about my way because I now think of my hair as this amazing like source of self-expression which black people have thought of they've used their hair for exactly that method since you know you know early recorded time in terms of you know pre-European um, contact so when you know that you have a totally different perspective of how you're going to talk about your hair, how you're going to teach your children to honor their hair and not to bemoan the fact that it's not white people's hair, right? And, and that only comes with knowledge. That only comes from understanding where you come from and the power that the hair has had through history. You are excellent. I'm, I'm so happy to, to have spoken with you about this topic because even, you know, as you were, again, talking I'm reliving my childhood, and I think I think for the most part, some of it I think had to had to do with the immigrant experience that my family, you know, my family brought here. Sure. But I also, but I also think too, as I, you know, being when I was younger, I didn't know I was biracial, but I knew I was different. Right, I had different hair texture, mm-hmm. and so and I had this sense of I felt different because my hair was not was not quote unquote black enough, right? So I wore my hair like two mm-hmm. ponytails. And I feel like as I grew up, I sort of diminished that, right? Because my hair brought attention to the fact that I was different. Mm-hmm. And I sort of sort of let my, you know, I'm thinking back like, oh, I made, I made, I made really interesting choices, right? So that my hair wouldn't become an object of conversation. It wouldn't, mm-hmm. it wouldn't help me as different. But mm-hmm. you know, but the but the but the more, you know, and then, and I don't know if other parents have this experience as well with their kids, right? And some of that might be that fear, right, that we have is like, we don't want our kid to be thought of as different. But I think having this conversation and hopefully parents who listen, listen to you, and hopefully they will also pick up your book, Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, will understand that we've got to let our kids flourish. We've got to let our kids sh- shine, show their creativity, show their, you know, show their beauty and and all of and all of their regalness right the hair style of clothes right of these forms of expression and i think i think what you said was so eloquent and i think you've given several several examples um but i don't know if you had any additional resources or tips yeah well well one thing i want to add also is that this is a really kind of uh, a reverse generational teaching that also has to happen because a lot of times our children are better able to embrace, you know, different hairstyles and, and not be caught up in what it means and what it doesn't mean. You know, there's so much more, you know, color and, 
you know, trying different things and mohawks and all, you know, it's, it's kind of cool what these younger generations are playing with hair in a way that, you know, we would have been just horrified. Mm-hmm. But what I am seeing is also, you know, people who are, you know, women who are, let's say, in their 30s and 40s or even their 20s having to turn around and teach their mothers that they need to let go of these ideas that their hair is bad or that it needs to be straight because their mothers and, you know, the older generations were really victims of this very deliberate brainwashing that, you know, black hair is substandard and black hair isn't appropriate, you know, in its natural state in public. Um, I know with my own mother, like I've had to just hammer it home so many times. I mean, it's taken her almost 20 years for her to stop talking about her own hair as bad hair, right? Mm-hmm. And my mom is a very, like, she is, like, seven degrees. Like, she's a very smart woman, but she is still so scarred from her upbringing where, you know, her mother was like, you know, you got bad hair. We have to make sure we fix it and all that stuff. That is So when we talk about, you know, helping our children, we do need to make sure that we are also, you know, letting our elders you know, obviously respectfully, but we are also educating them to give them a copy of Hair Story, right? It's not just getting the picture books for the kids, but also getting the books like Hair Story or um, some of the, there's lots of documentaries now that you can watch on YouTube that also, you know, delve into black hair issues. So it's about kind of, you know, not just the kids, but we got into our whole families. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Lori. Thanks for joining us this week on What is Black Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And for more information about the podcast, our blogs, and subscribe to our upcoming newsletter, go to our website at whatisblack.co. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode. And don't forget to leave us a review so we can continue to bring you fresh content. Until next time, thank you for listening.